say everything's bigger in Texas, including climate change. That's why Houston is leading the energy transition. Here in H-Town, the fourth largest city in the United States, entrepreneurs from across Texas and around the world are gathering to work with titans of industry to build the technology that will reduce emissions and power a low carbon future. We sit down with those change makers and wildcatters who are solving the toughest energy challenges. With trillions of dollars on the line, we dig into how Houston will bring technology to market on a massive scale. Join us as we talk with the leaders of the energy capital of the world as they show us how the energy transition gets done. I'm Lara Cottingham, and this is the Energy Technology Podcast. And I'm Jason Etier. Let's jump in. Welcome back to the show. Today, I'm with uh, Tom Wyrick. He's a key facilitator that has connected pivotal players in the global renewable energy industry for over 18 years. He's been working with teams that have closed over 300 renewable energy transactions across a variety of technologies. Throughout his journey, the stories of how colleagues got their start in renewables have continuously inspired and empowered him in his daily work. He currently works as a head of marketing for North America at EDP Renewables. An award-winning marketing leader in the energy sector, Tom is a frequent industry panel moderator, speaker, and op-ed contributor, focusing on innovation, entrepreneurship, and market opportunities surrounding the U.S. clean energy transition. Tom's passion for renewables extends beyond the confines of his day job, with countless hours spent promoting philanthropic efforts focused on technology innovation, career mentoring, workforce development, and STEM education. Tom, we had such a good time already today talking with you. I'm excited to have you here today to tell us about your recently launched book, We Took the Risk. Yes, thank you so much to you both. Yeah. So so start off there. Tell us about the book. Why did you write the book? Yeah, yeah. No, it... So the book writing journey for me was um, something unexpected. You know, we we're just talking about COVID before, right? And, and all of our journeys during COVID and how we found ourselves in unexpected places after, after COVID. And so uh, the book really took form uh, as a result of two parallel journeys that, you know, funny enough, some call it fate, some call it, you know, luck um, that happened together. So I uh, had been uh, thinking during COVID, I'd missed the funeral uh, pre-COVID of a mentor of mine, Lieutenant Colonel Bill Holmberg. Hmm. Uh, one of the godfathers of the biomass and biofuels industries, uh, very well respected. Um, and, and you know, lots of stories there, uh, lots of uh, career beginnings he gave to a lot of his interns who had who today are CEOs in, in the industries. And, uh, you know, I had missed his funeral and it was because of a stupid reason. Right. It was a business trip or something like that. And, you know, and I reflected back and I said, you know what, he deserved better for me. Um, he had invested 10 years of his life, you know, being a, a good mentor of mine. So I decided, let me write an op ed. Um, let me capture the stories of what he did and how it's impacted industry today and how people still can feel that impact in their day-to-day -day jobs. And so I started interviewing a lot of his former C, uh, mm -hmm. former interns, right, these CEOs, who had tons of great stories. I'm like, you know, I wish I knew about this before when I started, right? So that was going on on, on one side. Um, and then the other side, I, I got, uh, I've been, you know, I got pursued by a professor called Professor uh, Eric Hester from Georgetown University, who had started up something called the Creator Institute which was the institute uh, under the school, McDonough School of Business there at Georgetown that was focused on creating uh, new first-time authors who would take a big idea uh, and, and make it into a book. Um, and he had been pursuing me for four years, saying, hey, you know, I, you have a story to tell in renewables. And I was like, listen, I have a real-time job. I, I'm a horrible writer. Marketing's ruined me. I can do bullets. I can do ad copy, right? I can do fancy PowerPoint slides, right? But, but writing story, no, I can't do that. And, and so he pursued me for four years. And funny enough, that first week that I started writing uh, this op-ed mm -hmm. for Bill, 
he reached out again. And this time he said, hey, you have a story to tell. And I felt like it was Bill, you know, from above saying, hey, do it. And uh, lo and behold, you know, here I am a year and a half later. I said, yes, I, I took the risk. I, uh, you know, wrote the book and, um, you know, here I am. I love that. I think what you said, and that's an incredible tribute. And to have somebody be known as the godfather of something, yeah, I think that yeah, is yeah. like such a great title that I would aspire to. Although godmother sounds a bit <laughs> fairy-ish. So yeah, we're going to have yeah, to work yeah. on that. But that is that is a great, a great mm -hmm. tribute. Well, and, and Bill was this like six foot seven mm -hmm. tall guy. He was, you know, from the American, you know, greatest generation. You know, we talk about the greatest generation in this country. He was the greatest generation, one of the highly, most highly decorated Marines, um, you know, and and when you looked at him, you you saw, OK, this is why we're such a great country. This is why we have so much potential. And he really did dedicate his whole life to the pursuit of biomass and biofuels. And he did feel like, OK, we can make an impact. And he's proof that all it takes is one person to spark a revolution of sorts. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. So tell us about the book itself. Who is the book for? If, they, yeah. someone, if someone has never heard of it or you before, how would you describe it? Definitely. Well, I think the best way it was described was uh, a good friend of mine here in Houston came a call from the uh, Real Houston, from the Renewable Energy Alliance. Houston said, Tom, it's like a, a, a book where it's almost like we're having a coffee chat over breakfast and you're telling me about the renewables industry. And so the book really serves two purposes and two audiences. I would say the, the first audience is for those coming into the industry. Um, this is my way of saying, hey, we're wide open. We're an open book, no pun intended, for anyone coming in from the oil and gas industry or from elsewhere, from the, especially from the tech industry right now, right? We've been reading headlines about Twitter and other folks uh, leaving the industry, looking for another industry to uh, put their passion in. We're an industry that's open for business. We're an industry that's accepting of all skill sets. We need all these skill sets, right? We're, we're, we're actually hiring as many people as we can right now. We're still coming up short, just like the rest of the energy industry. And so this book is meant for those people to have almost a Cliff's Notes version of coming into the industry, knowing the jargon, knowing some of the stories mm -hmm. behind why we do things the way we do, and, and really also seeing themselves in the industry. You know, one of the most enlightening things someone told me the other day, and this was more from an EDNI perspective, but I think it applies here well too, is in order for you to succeed somewhere in, in an industry, you have to be able to see yourself in that industry, right? And this book mm -hmm. attempts to show you it takes many different people, many different traits, many different skill sets to be successful in this industry. And, and most likely nine times out of 10 or 10 times out of 10, you have one of those skill sets to be successful. So that's one audience. The other one is, I would say, for folks like me who have been in the industry now 18, 19 years, um, you know, you need to get encouraged and you need a, a steroid shot every <laughs> once in a while to empower and inspire you. And uh, this book serves as a way for us to look back and go, you know what? You still can make impact. You can be in the industry mm -hmm. now 25, 30 years. There's so many people to mentor. There's so many um, new technologies to innovate. There's so many new risks to take um, that, uh, you know, it, it's time for you to take a risk again. And so it's basically a calling to the current industry, uh, an industry that's become very mature and risk averse and shying away from risk, right? It's basically me telling colleagues, hey, take the risk. It's worthwhile. And we need more risk takers in, a, mm. in order to get to the next form of next evolution, evolutionary phase, sorry, renewable energy. So, yeah. so there, there are two things that uh, kind of come to mind when you talk about this. One, the, the energy transition has been happening a long time. Yeah. And, yeah. and in the startup world, sometimes we talk about climate tech 1.0 and 2.0 only spanning the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. The reality is there's a lot of work that's been going on in here. But the second thing I'm picking up and hearing is we are, we are talking about the energy transition today, but that is also a transition in careers. 
And there are a lot of folks um, who are transitioning from traditional energy and other industries coming into the renewables and, and new energy. And uh, this is a common question we get all the time. How do we how do we get involved? How do we jump in? Yeah. And this book is is the guidebook uh, to make that leap and become inspired for people with, uh, who are mid-career, but also people who are entering the industry who may have started their college careers thinking, I'm going to go to traditional energy, but wait, there's a transitioning happening. Let's get inspired and, and make that left turn into, totally. into energy transition technologies. And so this is this is the right time. And and I think one of the things that I, I appreciate about taking risks is knowing the right time to take risks. Correct. And and, and and coming out with this book today, now is the right time. Right? 100% agree. Yeah. And I, you know, I include in the back of the book a resources section on like all the, I call it the cult classics, all the mm-hmm. books that, um, you know, if someone told me, hey, to design a curriculum around renewables, you know, what would I read? What would I encourage mm-hmm. folks to read? Um, also in the acknowledgements, I go through a litany of folks who I couldn't get to in the book that deserve laud, right? That, that again, are... What I what I compare it to is like dropping breadcrumbs. You know, the book couldn't go through a hundred executives that I interviewed, but it does drop breadcrumbs for you to do your own research and, like you said, figure out who is that mentor in the industry that can help guide you into the industry and get you your Rolodex started. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, how did you get started in the industry? Oh gosh, so <laughs> um, just like everybody else, I fell into it. Right, um, you know, it was one of those situations of being at the right place at the right time and, and knowing the right people. Right, so. Um, I had, um, just come fresh from Silicon Valley. Um, it was the second bubble burst. So 2003, 2004, you know, packed up my four boxes. I was in my twenties. I'm like, you know, thank you, California, but that's it for my California dreams. I'm moving back to the East coast, came back to DC, which is where I, you know, which was my, uh, you know, Oak tree of mm-hmm. sorts where I had my contacts from college. Um, and, uh, was sleeping on a friend's couch. Um, and, and back then it was a different job situation where you would interview in person, you most likely walked away two to three offers, and then you would figure out what to do. And that would take maybe two weeks, right? So it's totally different times. And um, at the end of my stay, she had my friend Jody Roussel, who I was staying with, said to me, hey, um, I'm, uh, I work for this nonprofit called ACOR, the American Council on Renewable Energy. There's only two of us. We have the first ever policy forum on renewables. Do you know what renewables are? I'm like, yeah, you know, on satellites, you know, knew a little bit about it, but not a lot. She's like, well, hey, you have PR background. We have all these sponsors. We have media coming. Can you, even though you don't know about renewables, you have the skill sets you need to help me. Can you just come on site on Capitol Hill and, and help me run this conference for two days? So I was like, of course, you let me sleep on your couch for all this time, you know? And, and so I ran, I remember running to the store to get like fresh underwear and, you know, and clothes, <laughs> right? Because there was, she didn't have a, a laundry facility. And so I'm like, hey, let, I'm ready. And what I walked into, unbeknownst to me, was into an industry that I, I just fell in love with. Mm. Um, I love the energy. It was very entrepreneurial. It's still like the Wild West a little bit. Lots of ideas, lots of folks speculating on things. Wall Street was just then starting to look at renewables. So um, they're trying to start to think about innovative financing. Um, and there's just this energy and passion and belief that people had around you. And it's one of those things you walk into this room filled with energy and you're like, oh, I want into this, right? So I remember... Um, helping her out and then going to her boss, you know, the next day after the conference ended and pitching him and saying, you have to hire me. And he said, well, I don't have the money to hire you. I'm like, well, we'll figure something out, but you need to hire me. And, uh, and yeah, and that was the first year of 12 years at, at ACOR, growing it from a two person organization to a 50 person organization from $250,000 to over 15 million. Right. And, and really growing out in Oregon and, and finding an industry that I really loved and, and find a passion in, you know, and I think that was key is seeing also a career in front of me. I think that's a big key of attracting people into this industry is to 
give them that vision of, hey, this is a, a lifelong career and a lifelong passion you can pursue. Yeah. So I love that story because so much of what you said about the energy and yeah. the energy industry yeah. and how people were just starting to pay attention and that you could just like feel the excitement and the opportunity. I feel like we are in one of those spots again mm -hmm. today and that, you know, industries, especially in energy, they, they rise and they fall. And sometimes it can be a um, not so fun roller coaster, but, not at all. but yeah. right now, and your book is very like perfect timing talking about how we're in that space again and how the stakes are higher, right? Mm -hmm. There are so many other things going on in terms of climate, in terms of energy, in terms of geopolitical national security. Um, so, so with your policy background as well, like how do you see things falling into place right now? And I love how you use the word roller coaster. So the third <laughs> chapter is called the roller coaster. And it was a, a collaboration I did with Michael Liebreich, um, who started up Bloomberg New Energy Finance. Um, and we we broke up this roller coaster into four five, five phases, actually, right? Um, and I would say we're entering this phase now that the IRA gave a much needed injection of energy and and stability for the next 10 years, right? And that's what we needed as an industry. We needed stability. Mm -hmm. um, and, but there are, I would say, three challenges that still need to be taken on by policymakers, right, in order for us to succeed. Um, one of them being uh, transmission, right? There should have been an investment tax credit carve out in the IRA to help transmission build out because we can build as many solar farms and wind farms as we'd like. If we don't have the transmission though in place, it's not going to help us, right? The second thing is supply chain. Um, you know, that is something our policymakers need to figure out, right? We, we have the China tensions right now on trade, right? We, we have various, you know, the Oxen trade case and find the, you know, the Investment Trade Commission. And so many other things going on. We have to figure out uh, supply, and that means supporting uh, domestic supply. But understand that domestic supply, even in the most Pollyannish mm -hmm. views of like, let's get something ready in two to three years, it's going to be most likely five. And that's me being really positive, right? We hear good news. We hear first solar. We hear many others opening up factories in Alabama, Georgia, and many other places, right? So um, I think Enel just announced they're going to be opening up a new factory yep. in Alabama, right? So we we hear these good stories question is what do we do in the, in the short term and that is looking at southeast asia right and making sure we have policies in place that allow cost effective solar panels and other technologies to come in to you know stop gap that supply gap the third issue is on the ground level permitting and siting mm -hmm. um i cannot tell you how many of our developers um especially at eep renewables out the door waiting in lines and queues just to get permitting and siting done on a local level so that means working with public utility commissioners, regulators, folks on the ground to make sure that we can, uh, you know, really speed up those cues and, and get to work. And this ultimately, all these policies around these three issues then ties to workforce, right? And workforce development, which is another area where we need more positive policies in place to really encourage workforce development and workforce education. Because we have an opportunity here to take um, many segments of society who have been tied to traditional energy and say to them, hey, here's a new life, here's a new, again, a new career can begin, but we have to educate them, we have to give them the the tools they need to succeed. But yeah, I'd say those three policies, though, if we could figure out the transmission supply chain and permitting siting uh, side of the industry through policy would be golden. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, yeah. And I think uh, I'm hearing there's kind of two sides to a coin here. There's there's risk, yeah. but there's also stability. Correct. And, and policy gives you the stability you need to take on the right risks. Correct. and. I think a lot of times uh, when we see founders who are trying to build a new business, they have too much risk. There's policy risk, Correct. market risk, technology risk. You got to localize it down 
uh, to one or two risks you take 100%. that can create the value. And, and policy kind of creates that bedrock or that stability where you can build new businesses um, and bring to market new technologies. Well, it's, and it's all about calculated risk, yeah, right? And I exactly. think policy, it's either, you know, it's funny, you never in a perfect situation, we do a startup, right? You never have perfect financing, perfect policies, perfect marketing place, right? Or, and, and perfect technology, right? Those four. You usually have maybe best day scenario, two out of four, and you're like, great, this is gonna be a great day to wake up and get up, get into the <laughs> office and start up the startup, right? Um, and I think it is, you know, figuring out, okay, what, what do you feel comfortable with? And I think in, in my, uh, in my book, one of the executives, uh, Miguel Stilwell, the Andrade said to me, um, it's all about feeling comfortable with the risks you take and knowing and being comfortable with the downside mm -hmm. of what happens when a risk, you know, does not pan out. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think that's the thing about the book is many of the stories that I have there. So I, I cover 25 executives careers, right. And I go through their own personal roller coasters, which, you know, you can put into a context behind them of, of the history of renewables, right? And the, the ups and downs of the investment tax rate of PTC and other things, but all of them failed, all of them failed. Mm -hmm. But instead of just sitting down and saying, okay, great, I'm going to move on to my next venture. They saw such a potential in renewables, like, no, I'm going to get back on the horse here and let me reinvest in the industry. Let me change tactic. Let me change strategy and, and proceed forward. And, uh, What's great is that there's such a community of people in the renewables industry that even if you fail, there's a safety net mm -hmm. where people say, I still will invest in you. You know, mm -hmm. this failure makes you actually stronger. So that's really what was heartening, I would say, in, in all my research in the book. Yeah. Yeah. So, so celebrating failure, I'm sure there was a time you had to face failure and, and you got back up on the horse. Yeah. Tell us yeah, about that. Yeah. yeah. No, I would say, you know, one of the, the failures I had, well, two, right? Um, and they were both job transition uh, mm -hmm. items, right? So the first one was from Silicon Valley. I was 23. Um, part of a layoff, um, being 23 and part of a layoff just is not fun <laughs> for, and even if you're older, it's just not fun. <clears throat> and, um, so what happened with the layoff was, uh, you know, it was, it was calculated. We we're all told, okay, sorry, you're going to lose your job. And, and I, uh, I didn't see it then, but it was a chance for myself to, for me to reinvent myself mm -hmm. and my career. Right. If I had not been laid off from that job in California, I would have never been in renewables. Right. Mm -hmm. So um, that was one area where I, I had to re-strategize and reinvent myself. And I think that was a lesson and, and a, a, a lifelong lesson that, that, I, uh, that I learned. And just that exercise itself gives you resilience mm -hmm. as an individual mm -hmm. and resilience in your career. Um, second time, again, related to, and it's, these were the two times I failed right in my career. You know, I had um, been at a great job for an Irish infrastructure fund in New York um been up in new york for six years and um you know i was traveling on the weekends back and forth between virginia and new york because my my parents are older my dad's 87 suffering from dementia and other things and you know i was like well i i need to help my family and so i was going back and forth and taking every flix bus every amtrak regional train i mean i i figured out every way to get between virginia and new york on a dime right um, and so I went to my, my HR department up in New York and I said, listen, I, I need you to figure out, can we do some remote work or hybrid work, something right. Um, and, and they said, well, we don't encourage that. And we don't do remote work or hybrid work. Hmm. And it was the first time in my job that I kind of looked them straight in the face and said, you know what, you're asking me to choose between family or career and I'm choosing family mm -hmm. and I'll choose family 10 times out of 10. And they kind of, you know, like, okay. And so I resigned. 
Lo and behold, a month later, COVID hit New York. Mm -hmm. And my good Catholic mother said, see, now they all have to work from home, right? <laughs> so, you know, so it was, it was kind of like, but it was a hard decision. Did you manifest the pandemic? I know, yes, no, I did that's... not. I did not. I promise you, I did not. I did not. But no, but it, it, you know, it was just uncanny. You know, I leased out my apartment in New York. For those of you who have ever leased in New York, right, you can't just walk away. You have to pay the, the balance of your lease, you know, if you walk through, you know, walk away midway. So poor couple that I, I still feel guilty to this day. I had no clue, but I leased out my apartment, moved down to Virginia. I was like, okay, step one, did that. Mm. Step two, find a job. So, you know, how do I uh, survive? And so I found a job uh, in renewables with a solar, a local solar company called SunTribe. Fantastic team, very entrepreneurial, small from Charlottesville, Virginia. And their, their biggest customer base was public schools. Mm. Now you have to understand this is COVID. Um, public schools were, were scrambling around trying to figure out how to get virtual education going. There I was pitching solar to public schools during COVID when they're looking at their budgets going, dude, we're, we're trying to find money for iPads and getting Wi-Fi to these kids in rural areas. And so it was really funny. I, I, you know, not funny, but I learned sales skills by going to these school boards, virtual school boards, of course, mm -hmm. and saying, listen, you can find the money you need by going solar, save money on energy costs, and then dedicate that money towards virtual education. So again, um, not the best of, of times, um, but I did that. Unfortunately, just the job didn't work out. It just mm -hmm. wasn't me. Um, and, you know, um, my CEO back then and I had a very uh, good heart to heart and said, hey, this just is not working out. Again, not a great situation, but again, builds a resiliency to recognize when things are not working out and when to be able to walk away and be at peace at it. So we did that. Um, they took care of me until the end of the year. I'm eternally grateful to them mm -hmm. as a result. I mean, Good team, good people, right? Uh, and uh, a month later, you know, Rich Dover from EDPR gave me a call saying, hey, uh, I'm looking for marketers. We don't have any marketers here. What would it take to poach you? And I'm like, well, not a lot. Uh, and there I am. And here I am in Houston today working for EDP, right? So it just shows you have to be open. Sometimes in life, doors don't open, but windows do. Mm -hmm. You just have to hard, you know, build a good ladder of hard work and jump through that open window. Yeah. So we got to ask about Houston, right? This yeah. podcast is focused on the good things that are happening in Houston. So you are new-ish to Houston. Yes, two years. I want to hear your story years. about yeah. your first week in Houston, but also <laughs> yeah. what's it like being a renewables guy yeah. in the self-proclaimed energy capital of the world that has so much of an oil and gas history? Like, what has that been like in Definitely. the, what are we now, three, three years Two, no, years. two years. I can't two count. It's I don't like know what year it years. is. Two years. Right. I'm, I'm giving myself a couple of months, but um, I would say two years. It's been great. I mean, first of all, um, you know, it's only been two years, but I, I do call myself a proud Houstonian. Mm -hmm. um, I live in the Montrose Hyde Park area of the city. Absolutely love it. I think it's the best kept secret in the country. I think people want it that way, you know, to, to keep yes. it small and, uh, you know, the way it is. But um, people have been extremely welcoming. And I think, you know, it, it almost ties back to being a, a Texan, you know, as long as you're a good neighbor, you do good work, you um, you go out there, considerate, thoughtful, and you come to create an impact, I think you're welcome with open arms. And I think that that opens up to the oil and, and gas industry also, the traditional energy industry. Same thing. I think, you know, for someone who's in renewables, I found Houston very accommodating to it, um, but it's not necessarily easy. It's like, well, prove the value, show us the numbers, show us that this works and we'll work with you. But I've been really proud of Houston, given um, it is an innovation hub, right? There's so many different um, groups, you know, Greentown Labs. There's different associations like Real Houston and uh, Ally Energy, right? There's so many different groups working on different components of the renewable energy industry and how to make our, our industry more resilient. 
that it makes you really proud. And it surprised me just how many. Like, uh, I just had my launch event for the book last Tuesday. And, you know, I thought, well, New York or D.C. is going to be the largest one. No, I had 200 mm -hmm. people here in Houston. I'm like, whoa. And it just shows you how many people I think are sincerely interested and involved in the industry. Um, but I would say, yeah, my first week in Houston coming in um, was to sign my contract. Um, I had a good friend of mine, Christine Church, who I've known forever, who's a seventh generation Houstonian, who said, well, Tom, you know, after you sign your contract, you know, stay the weekend. And I usually fly back right away after my trip. So I'm like, no, I'll stay. And it was, I think, President's Weekend, mm -hmm. 2021. Mm -hmm. Uh, and for those of you who know those dates, you know, you probably know what I'm going to. That but, will live uh, in infamy. It <laughs> in infamy. But yeah, so it was the, the weekend of the freeze. I remember looking at my house. It was the only house that was heated that weekend, right? All, you know, and all the other houses were cold, but this one, the real estate agent's like, no, let me heat it. I remember signing the contract for the house Sunday night. And then, uh, as we all know, everything just went to hell Sunday night into Monday. And, uh, I was stuck here and, uh, it was just amazing to see how temperature variation can cause such impact. And when we talk about climate stories, right, mm -hmm. and climate change and feeling the impact, here I was in a new city, the energy capital of the United States, yet we had no energy. Just the irony in that in <laughs> itself, right? And uh, it, it was an experience, but again, um, to, to the point about being a proud Houstonian, you saw the good in people, right? I had a Lyft driver who was probably one of the only two Lyft drivers driving that week, who was kind enough to grab me and get me to the airport during one of the first lights out runs, say, right? My house, no one bid against it because guess what? The systems were down. So I won out in that. So I, the one good thing to come out of this was that I got a great deal in my house, right? <laughs> um, but no, but you saw like Christine, like I, you know, I was with her. Her house had no power. Uh, it then had no water. We then went her to her brother's house where he was housing 20 people. I felt like it was survivor. All of us brought our assets. You know, one family had a lot of food. We had the water we had in bathtubs. We brought in jugs. They had electricity. Someone had a, a Wi-Fi hub, you know, so we all brought what we had together and worked together. And I think that almost is a good analogy to the energy and gas industry, right? And the energy and oil industry in that um, we all have our assets. Let's come together and actually work with all the assets we have and give birth to something better. And that, that's what I feel the renewable story is here in Houston. We're all coming together with what we have and making a, a, a new future, basically, for this energy industry here in Houston. So uh, also as a, as a marketer, as a communications person, yeah. you will appreciate this. Um, I, when I worked at the city of Houston, one of the things I was most proud about was that we moved the city of Houston to 100% renewable energy, that Houston was the number one city for renewables more than any other city. And people refused to believe it. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. That even though it was like, nope, it's a contract, it's public, you can look at this, right? It saved us a ton of money. And and all of these things, and we we announce it, and people would just always come forward and be like, "What? Like, really? Mm -hmm. No! Like, it couldn't be." Um, and and trying to change that narrative was hard, right? And that happened in the early months of the pandemic, and so it was kind of a slow roll. But what also I think is that people don't understand, and you wouldn't get that unless you were here, is that it is tragic, but the climate events that keep happening mm -hmm. are making Houston as a community push that energy transition forward because they're living and breathing it, right? Correct. It still needs to be faster. We still need to get through a lot of challenges, but um, you saw it in your first like hours on the ground yeah, here. Yeah. And I do think that's such an important part. And I, you know, knock on wood, it, it doesn't happen mm -hmm. again. Knock on wood, we take the learnings from those moments that brought mm -hmm. us all together. And I do think you feel that when we talk about 
the energy transition. It's this kind of challenge, like the space race, right? Like yeah. Houston also put man on the moon. So we do have this kind of feeling, oh, we can do this. But we need more people like you, I think, coming to Houston <laughs> to help write books, if that's what we need, kick yeah. us in the right direction. Well, and we can all make a, a difference, right? And, and and it doesn't take a lot of work, right? So when I moved here, you know, I signed up for Power Wizard, right? I, I had not been used to choosing my utility, right? <laughs> Having lived in Virginia and New York before, I'm like, wow, this is interesting. And I'm like, oh, God, this is a lot of work. So I went with Power Wizard. And, you know, every year, you know, they change up your contract to get you the most cost-effective energy. Shockingly, uh, this year, they all of a sudden come back to me and said, hey, we're signing up for Clean Skies. It's the most cost-competitive energy. And guess what? You have a, you're being powered 100% by wind power. I didn't have to put solar panels on my roof, right? I didn't have to do anything. I just tapped into the most cost-competitive energy, right? So it just shows you by me doing that, by me, you know, just citizen Wyrick, right, living in Montrose, I was able to do that without making a lot of effort. Mm -hmm. And so we can all make that difference because that kind of support then helps develop these wind farms, these solar farms and other things. And that's why community solar and programs like that, that offer especially low to medium income houses, access to clean, reliable energy is so vital because at the end of the day, you know, you and me can afford it. Um, there are many people that have to choose between do I heat my house or do I put food on the table for my kids? And that's why there's so much power in community solar and, you know, those kinds of programs that give you access without having to invest directly. So you talk about EDI, yes. right? First of all, tell us what that means. Uh, equity, diversity, and inclusion. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they call it DE&I. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and also now it is yeah. DEIJ, right? Oh, We're adding in the, the justice, justice, right? right? Yeah. So yeah. talk about that and how it pertains to your book and your own yeah. kind of journey. Yeah. I mean, you talked about it a little bit about energy burden and communities Correct. and low income. Um, how do we help offset uh, costs of energy, clean energy to the communities that need it most? Yeah, it's all about access at the end of the day, right? Um, well, what's um, what's amazing with the book, right? So when I was writing the book, I was trying to be really thoughtful. And it was a hard exercise uh, when I was looking at the original risk takers, right? And when I developed my, my list of 100 executives to interview, um, I wanted to make sure there was a gender parity in the book. I wanted to make sure there was also background, diversity and background. But diversity, not only from a a racial uh, perspective or education perspective, but also socioeconomic. Mm -hmm. I feel there's a big socioeconomic divide in the country, and I, I really want to tap into that. So of the 25 executives, I tapped into that. You know, and I, I when I filtered out down to those 25, I made sure to represent that. And I feel that the book gives you the foundation. Um, and in my New York book launch, it was interesting that the EDI question came up towards the end going, well, that's great. You give us the foundation. What's next for our industry? And I think what's next for our industry is if we truly are an industry that believes and espouses the values we do about clean energy and and doing good for the for the, you know not only for the climate but for our economy. I think that has to translate to ethical values, right? What does mm -hmm. that translate to? That is, you know, reliable energy for those who need it, right? It's workforce opportunities, and you know, someone said it the other day really well. It's really easy to hire somebody like yourself, mm -hmm. right? It's harder to hire somebody that's not like you, because it takes a lot of investment on your time and and it challenges you as a professional, as a manager, right? So that's something important we all have to adopt, right? It is about providing those mentorship opportunities. All it takes is 15 minutes a week to make a difference in my life, right? And that, you know, I'm a, I'm a product of that, right? Mm -hmm. and, and so many other people are. So, you know, it again goes back to if we want a, a just and equitable approach to things, um, it, all it takes is for you to start it uh, in your own work environment, right? And go from there. But I think it translates into uh, financing, you know, and how we finance projects, especially around community solar. It ties into policies, you know, with transmission build out, especially in urban areas, right? And and promoting community solar. And then ultimately it does talk about technology and access to technology and how do we make sure that 
Um, not only putting solar um, where it's needed, but also storage, right? And creating mm -hmm. microgrids and hubs of resiliency for communities that are prone for climate change, right? Um, so it takes all of that, I think, to really get on that, you know, get on that journey. I agree with you so much. And, and when we talk about climate tech, we talk about investment, we talk about the new technology. Correct. And sometimes we have to take a step back and think about it from a community perspective, mm -hmm. from a national and like a global perspective, right? I just got back from COP and the yeah. big push this year was around justice and was around mm -hmm. how do we take into account the um, countries that are absolutely hammered by climate change that are not responsible for the emissions that came from the industrial world. They are having incredible population growth. They need more energy. How can they afford more energy, more clean energy, right. but also, you know, they're, how can they build the resilience to stay in their homes? And when we think about though, coming back to Houston, looking at it at the micro level, we're talking about businesses, right? Correct. You've got a bottom line. You've got um, investors, you've got people to mm -hmm. pay and that we want to get the technology viable, but also how do we do it fast enough to solve this global crisis? And, and I'm not the, expecting yeah. you to have the answer, no. <laughs> but, but I welcome it. I yeah, think yeah. you've got one. <laughs> well, and, and you have to ask yourself, why are we doing this? Mm -hmm. Right. Why are we doing this? Right. Um, and, and to your point, you know, especially on population. Right. So coming out of COP, some of the most interesting studies have been that even though these these huge population centers are, are growing, they actually are not impacting climate. It's actually the top 5% with the top five economies that are actually, you know, affecting climate. People um, in those regions have so little resources mm -hmm. that they actually are working off of a fraction of the energy we work on. So the question is, how do we both um, grow a technology that's going to help humanity, but do it in a way that's less energy consuming, right? Right. So it's this really interesting delta of figuring out how do we accomplish both at the same time? Um but no, it's it's you know the COP and redistribution of resources, all that. Um, it's it's a hard question, right? I mean, I my background, you know, my my parents escaped communism, so anything that smells like socialism, I I'm like heck no. Um, but there you is a way. You feel too well here in Texas. I, I was gonna say I'm, I'm like oh heck no, right? Mm -hmm. And and having lived through it, you know, anything that reeks like, of communism, socialism, like equal distribution, I'm like okay, it doesn't work, right? But I feel that there is a, a happy marriage of capitalism and. Uh, social good mm -hmm. and figuring out how can we work to, to you know, and have both of them kind of intersect uh, at, at a good spot. So not a not the direct answer you're looking for, I think, but, you know, some of the, at least some of the breadcrumbs on how to answer that question. Yeah. And appropriately, a very Texan answer. So yes. I like it. So see, so I'm, I'm happy I'm absorbing the Texan ways. Right. I'm, I'm, I'm osmosis. Yeah. See, you talked on a few technologies like uh, uh, or, or infrastructure, like transmission. Yeah. Are, are there some technologies or initiatives that really get you excited today? You know, one of them is a surprise. So storage, mm -hmm. excited beyond belief. It's not the most sexiest thing, but it's the most neatest, needed thing, right? Um, and so storage excites me. Um, here in, in Houston, right, we have Key Capture Energy, started up by Jeff Bishop, who's in the book, right, who graduated from Rice University, so homegrown, um, one of our homegrown CEOs. And uh, there's so many stories about different startups and groups here in, tech, in, in Houston really revolutionizing the renewables industry, which makes me really proud. Um, the one that I'm really surprised I'm saying, and I'm kind of a hypocrite, is hydrogen. Mm -hmm. If you told me five years ago, I would have laughed at you and said, well, that's cute. Hydrogen's cute, right? Because I remember when I lived in DC, the only thing I knew about hydrogen was that the German ambassador to the US had a hydrogen-powered BMW. And that was BMW's advertising of, hey, we have hydrogen vehicles. And you're like, hey, it's just not economical. You know, again, 
the the also the, the from a technology perspective the the power it took to translate you know one form of energy into another via hydrogen right just wasn't making sense and also like where do you fuel where's the infrastructure behind fueling hydrogen right so what i'm really surprised about and i'm eating crow for this is that um all of a sudden hydrogen has become viable with the ira now hydrogen actually gets some tax credits it becomes economical and for those industries like the steel industry this like the cement manufacturing industry those high um high heat high intensive energy intensive industries this actually is a great opportunity to become at least a little more carbon neutral or, or you know or mitigate carbon emissions right and and turn it into some form of storage of energy that could be used transportation wise powering wise you name it so I'm really excited about hydrogen. Um, I just need to see things happening, right? So there's three projects I know there, you know, uh, that we're building at EDPR. Um, one's a former 100 megawatt coal facility that is being turned into a hydrogen facility. It's really exciting. Um, but you do hear of projects mostly like in the 1 to 1.5 megawatt range here in the U.S. being built by various entities. And I think that's going to be exciting. But the question, just like with electric vehicle charging, is where's the infrastructure? So as as we are simultane we have to be simultaneously thinking about infrastructure build out as we're thinking about the technology, right? So that's the challenge I think for both scientists as well as financiers and developers is how do we innovate while at the same time building out that infrastructure so it's widely accessible and that way able to deploy and commercialize the minute you know we've perfected the technology. Houstonians are so excited about hydrogen, yeah, right? Yeah. They want to make the H and H-Town stand for hydrogen. And you can just go to the traditional energy conferences. We have one every week. And people will talk about energy transition. And then they talk about hydrogen. And you can yeah, just tell, yeah. like, they can wrap their heads around it. This is an industry that is like what they've done for a long time. And they they want right. to see it happen. But like you wisely said, like, are we actually doing stuff? And, right? and what, what facet of hydrogen are you involved with, right? It's like a buzzword. It's like this exciting buzzword. And it's actually a whole industrial sector. So are you involved in the storage of it, the transportation of it, the production of it, right? What phase of hydrogen are you involved with? And that's where we need these smart people that are smarter mm -hmm. than me, these smart engineers to come in to solve. Not exactly to mention what, the yeah. rainbow of colors, of oh, options yeah. Yeah. of yeah. hydrogen. Yeah. Yeah. So a question for you. Um, green hydrogen. Yes. Hydrogen renewables, power to X, like plethora of opportunities there, yeah. but we also need those renewable, we need that clean energy on the grid. Correct. So Correct. which comes first? You know, I think it's going to happen at the same time. You know, blue hydrogen, which is a, a nice way of calling just gray hydrogen or, you know, blue hydrogen and green hydrogen. <laughs> I, I just, I just, you know. But please describe it for us. What okay. is blue hydrogen? I'm sorry. Yes. So green yeah. hydrogen is hydrogen that's produced 100% from renewable energy sources. Blue hydrogen is hydrogen produced from, from uh, traditional energy sources, right? Um, I think you're going to come into this industry with both. Um, it's going to be a question of policies of which incentivizes, you know, which policy incentivizes what. Um, ultimately, I think we're going to come in with both. But what's going to happen is as we build out more transition lines, right? So, for example, if you want to produce hydrogen with wind, because wind blows mostly at night, no brainer. Let's produce hydrogen at night. But the problem is your wind farm is in the panhandle, hundreds of miles away from any transmission um, load or pipeline or whatever you want to call it, right? So question will be... Um, you know, the timing of things, but I think it's going to be blue and green coming in together into this industry. And as the transmission and pipelines get built out for green hydrogen's transmission, then we're going to ultimately go all green. But I think just like with everything, it's going to be a combination of both. Uh, and I think that's going to also help us perfect hydrogen, right? Um, because you'll need scientists on both sides figuring out, okay, how do we perfect hydrogen? How do we make it uh, economical? How do we make it at scale? How do we make it safe? Uh, and especially in the transport of it, you know, we want to make sure it's safe. Um, and then also do, you know, 
how do you liquefy it? You know, mm-hmm. how do you transport it in ships? Right, right now with the war in Ukraine, I think we're trying to figure out how many ways can we help uh, Europe right now through their energy crisis, and I think hydrogen is going to be one of those big answers. Yeah, I think it's funny to for me to think about how I've been pushing for we need renewables to power the grid for a very long time. Mm -hmm. And now there are folks in the industry, the traditional energy industry that are excited about renewables because they want to take that energy and turn it into hydrogen. And so it's not, it's not wrong, right? It's not an either or we need both, but it's like, uh, but we just jumped an entire like type of industry. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think also the story is that is why that's, that's the opportunity in Mm -hmm. the energy transition is that, it's taking the technology, it's borrowing technologies from one side to the other, taking clean technology and applying it to traditional, taking the expertise from the traditional energy and applying it to clean technology. Definitely. My goal is that one day we go back to it just all being energy. Oh, 100%. And I think the yeah. IRA sets us on a good path to stop um, making pitting the individual types of generation against each other and just mm-hmm. making it clean, right? And, and, and that, then- that was the beginnings of renewables. I mean, many people forget about 20 years ago, the different renewable technologies were against each other because they were fighting for breadcrumbs on the table mm-hmm. instead of looking at pieces of the pie, right? Slices of the pie. And so like any other technology, I think we have to, like you said, be unified, have a unified approach, be holistic, but have an end goal, right? That is clean and 100% renewables. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I, I think um, as we are uh, thinking about coming together and working together, what are things that Houston can do better to, to continue leading the energy transition? Well, I think, you know, like the book says, just we took the risk, like we need to take the we need to continue taking the risk. Right. So the publishers already got back to me and said, hey, you know, you have all these other interviews like on on the back burner, uh, you know, archived. Do, do you want to do another book? So the joke is, you know, should I do? We took the risk again. You know, <laughs> what, what kind of corny titles can I do for the second book? Right. But no, in all seriousness, I think we were an opportunity. I think Larry said it really well. Houston has all the resources. We have all the tools. We have the workforce. We have the knowledge base. Uh, we have the experience in energy, last 100, 200 years experience of energy here in the U.S. We have the right formula, the right sauce, so to say, to take a risk. And let's start taking risks on technologies. Let's start investing these new technologies. Let's start impacting our economy, creating energy independence, right? Creating resiliency um, and, and, and also just spring up the economy. Energy has such a power. Talking about, you know, inflation and where we are with economics today, we have such a power here to really help spark and reboot the American economy through U.S. made energy, right? So shame on us if we don't, right? And also, we can give a vision and a future to so many people. You know, for me, um, you know, I recently volunteered with the Young Women's Preparatory Academy in in downtown Houston. That's made up of these bright STEM-educated young ladies. Who I was like, crap! I would not be employable if these if these young ladies were against me today. Even today, when they're sixteen, I'm like, mm-hmm. I would not be hired. I mean, just really inspirational young ladies. And when I see that kind of future in Houston and these young people who are looking at STEM with excitement and they are not afraid Mm -hmm. of the risks, they're not afraid of the challenges, it gives me hope. And I think that's what Houston should be known for is not, you know, the the H not only stands for hydrogen, but also for hope. Mm -hmm. And, um, (laughs) you know, and and also for a commitment to excellence and energy. And, And we have a responsibility. I think it also goes back to accountability and responsibility. And I think that's also something that ties back to the book is all these executives felt a responsibility and accountability, not only for their business and for their employees, but also for the greater industry. And I think that when you have that greater accountability or you feel that calling to create an impact, you're driven to succeed mm-hmm. and, and fly past all those exits of failure. You know, you just keep on going. 
And I think that's something we need today. And I think Houston has the right combination of, of traits. It has all the, the stars aligned to, to really make that impact. This is the G of hope. <laughs> uh, um, go ahead. Oh, well, that I, I love. We are a city of hope and hydrogen. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. What? The two to go together, right? You just hope that hydrogen works out. I mean, we've, put, we've invested so much already, right? So. Well, we'll figure it out. Um, what advice do you have for those women who you met with, for those yeah. getting into climate tech, for those coming to Houston? How do we make sure we use our powers for good, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. How yeah. do we, like I said, how do we use your book to kick people into action? Yeah, definitely. Well, first of all, um, for those listeners, grab the book. Um, I actually got a $2,000 donation, anonymous donation from somebody um, who said, just give me one book. I want the rest of the money to go to books to go to people who need the inspiration and who need the, the help. And let me tell you, there's been so many journeys during my writing journey. There have been so many instances where I've been completely humbled. Right. And that anonymous donation was followed by another one. Mm. It says the same thing. So I partnered with the Clean Energy Leadership Institute. I've partnered with ACORS Accelerate program, which helps uh, provide mentorship for um, CEOs from startups from marginalized communities. Right. I've partnered also um, with uh, Rise and mm -hmm. Grid, uh, Grid Alternatives on their on their uh, solar fellows that are empowering uh, college and university educated um, STEM educated uh, professionals who are looking to make an impact in renewables. There's just so many ways you can impact by telling people these are organizations to go to to get help to get mentorship. But the most important thing I think the lesson that I talk about in my book uh, in the first part of the book was my first assignment at ACOR under my first CEO Mike Eckhart was. He gave me a list of 25 and he said, I need you to pick up the phone. And this was before email and Zoom and Teams, right? Not to age myself too much. Um, interview them, ask them how they got into renewables. And lo and behold, that was the beginning of my own personal Rolodex. And I didn't know it back then, but I did it um, because I was also trying to sell booths for a conference, right? <laughs> and he's like, well, before just, you can't just ask them to buy a booth, ask them the story, how they got there and then relate their need to kind of what we're providing as an opportunity. And lo and behold, I think that's my biggest piece of advice is start your journey by just interviewing people. You're, you'll be shocked by how many people on LinkedIn will write you back and say, you know what? Yes, I do have 15 minutes for a coffee. Let's do it. Because that helps you not only get educated on the industry, it helps build that Rolodex. And that Rolodex will last you your entire career. I cannot tell you how many times those first 25 people, I can still name who they are today, right? And that was 19 years ago. I can tell you every single one of them has popped into my career journey over and over and over again. And I think that's the story of the community of renewables. You will have these people for the rest of your life. We're all on the same journey. We're all in it together. And I think, you know, galvanize on that. So that'd be my biggest piece of advice, aside from obviously getting the book, um, would be to uh, tell us where to get the book. Yes. Okay, book. <laughs> So I'm really so book, you can get it on Amazon. It's on Barnes Noble. But I really encourage you. There are independent bookstores. I'm a big believer that independent bookstores are the cornerstone of our society. So I'm really part uh, happy to partner with Blue Willow here in Houston, which is one of the last independent bookstores. Um, they're carrying the book. Um, please support them. Of course, I'm in other independent bookstores, Powell's in, in Portland, The Strand. Um, my favorite actually is Shakespeare and Company in New York. So if you have a close second, you can always order from Shakespeare and Company in New York. They actually have a whole whole section there with a lot of books, uh, my books ordered. And um, please order from from these folks. Um, but yeah, Amazon is available. Get in two days, Barnes and Noble and, and many uh, and any other bookstores where you get your books. Is there anything else you want to share? 
You know, listen, I think, um, you know, I invite people to join my journey. So a lot of this, you know, I've been posting on LinkedIn and social media about all these different phases of my journey and, and people come back to me saying, you know, just as cool as what you say in the, you know, just as cool as the book is how you came to write the book mm -hmm. and who you encountered and how you did it. And so I do have a blog um, for my book website. So the book website's called, uh, it's www.wetooktherisk.com, just the title of the book. And there is a blog there where it kind of documents how I wrote the book. So if anyone listening wants to write a book, um, I, I show my whole story of how I wrote the book because it is a whole other industry. It's been fascinating just to learn about another industry, right? Um, and again, uh, there's just so many people to thank um, along the way. But uh, I join you, you know, I welcome everybody to join that writing journey and the continuation of my writing journey moving forward. All right. Well, I thank you, Tom. Yeah. This is great. Yes. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, I hope you have a happy Thanksgiving week yes. ahead of you. Thanksgiving, thank God. It's finally here. We all need it. I think it's been one heck of a year. And then, but it's been crazy, right? Poof, 2002. Yeah. Oh, 2002. My God. 2022. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. Time is fluid 2022 now. is flow. Exactly. You're going exactly. back and forth. I'm going back and forth. I'm going back and forth. But it's been great, great conversation with you both. Thanks Good. again. Yeah. Cool. Yeah.